Well, good morning. And, uh, it's good to be to, together in worship this morning. Um, as we are uh, the, coming to the end of our series on, on generosity, um, since I'm soon going to be departing, uh, Pastor Malone just gave me the charge this morning to just really shake people down um, <laughs> and just guilt everyone into giving as much money. No, no, uh, he did not say a word of that. Um, so so don't, uh, don't tell him that I said uh, No. Um, but uh, one, one thing that, that I've enjoyed about uh, this series is, is one, actually uh, taking the time to actually stop um, and, and talk about uh, not just the importance of generosity, but a lot of the why behind generosity and, and why uh, generosity is a, a central feature of, of the Christian life. And, and as we kind of wrap this series up, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, generosity that sort of goes above and beyond the, the obligations of generosity. Uh, generosity that, that doesn't ask what am I sort of required to give? Uh, what, what is sort of the, the bare minimum? And, and generosity that is instead asking how much can I possibly give? How, how can I go above and beyond the call of duty? And we see actually a really profound example of that in our Old Testament lesson from the book of Ruth this morning. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this story, maybe you're not. Uh, it is uh, one of uh, my favorite stories uh, in all of Scripture, the, the short book of Ruth. And, and we see here uh, this, this kind of strange uh, event that, that unfolds that, that maybe doesn't make a, a great deal of sense, or, or we maybe stop and ask, what, what does this have to do with the rest of the Old Testament narrative? So I want to just take a, a look back at, at what is taking place here in the book of Ruth. So uh, before our, our reading picked up this morning, at the very beginning uh, of chapter 1, we're introduced to these, these three characters. You have Ruth, who, who's kind of the main character of the story, her sister-in-law Orpah, who, who is here very briefly and then kind of departs, and, and then their mother-in-law, Naomi. And, and what happens actually to all three of these women is their husbands die. So Naomi, the mother-in-law of these two women, her husband dies, as, as well as her two sons that these two young women were married to. And, and so that's where, where we pick up the story, is, is you have these three widows who were all bound together by, by marriage who, who are now trying to figure out what, what does life mean for us now. So I'm going to pick up there at, at chapter, or chapter 1 verse 6 where, where we picked up this morning. It says, Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her, her daughters-in-law to return to the country from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices 
and wept. I'm going to stop there for a moment. So here what has happened is, is these two young women, they were women from Moab. They, they were not from the house of Israel or the tribe of, of Judah where Naomi and her sons were from. And so these two Moabite women, they, they had come to, to know and, and come to be welcomed into the household of, of Naomi and her husband and her sons. And then after all of their husbands had died, she says to these two young women, just return to your home country and find husbands there. Return to your home country and, and find husbands there. Now this is important in that day. Because as you may know, that, that in this time, for, for women in that day, their livelihood was very much attached to whom? It was attached to their husbands and, and the men in their lives. So, for example, typically what would happen in a, in a, a Jewish household, if, if a man would, would marry a woman and they didn't bear any children, what would then happen is, is that woman would be given in marriage to his next unmarried brother. Now, this was for two reasons. One is it was the job of that younger brother to bear children in the name of his older brother and continue that family lineage through that way. But it also served another function. Is that it was a way of making sure that this widowed woman was cared for. That she would go live in the household of her brother-in-law and take him as her husband. So that she could bear children who then in her old age could care for her. This was sort of something of an insurance policy for women in that day. It maybe sounds odd and, and antiquated to us now. But again, in the societal structure of that day, this is how widows were cared for. But what happens in, in this case when Naomi, her husband, has died. Her two sons have died. These women are simply lost and destitute. They have no one in their immediate family to, to care for them and, and to provide for them. And so what Naomi is doing here for her daughters-in-law is actually an incredible act of graciousness. She's saying, you know what? You need to go and make sure that you are cared for. So return to your homeland and find husbands there. And may God deal kindly with you as you have with me. She releases them from any obligation to care for her any longer. She says, let me go. I'll figure things out. You go make sure that you find a husband so that you are cared for and provided for. But what we see here is that these two daughters-in-law aren't so quick to just run off and care for themselves and leave their mother-in-law, Naomi, hanging. Verse 10, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
So here, Naomi, she makes this great case. She says, you know what? I don't have sons. I'm too old to take another husband. And even if I were to have sons, are you going to wait until they come of age to marry them? No, go. Take care of yourself. And, and so Orpah listens to her mother-in-law. She returns to Moab. But Ruth, it says, clung to her. Ruth refuses. She remains with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Verse 15, she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Finally, Ruth wears Naomi down. And even though she no longer has any obligation to her mother-in-law, Naomi, right? she's been freed from all of it. Naomi has been insistent, Ruth, you don't have to remain with me. Go, make sure you're cared for. But in spite of having no obligation to this woman, she insists, no, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Ruth yokes herself to her mother-in-law, making sure that not only is she cared for, but that this woman, Naomi, will be cared for as well. Because she's motivated not by obligation. If she was motivated merely by obligation, what would she have done? She very clearly would have returned to Moab to try to find a husband there and make sure that, that she was, was well off and taken care of. But no, she's not motivated by that. She's motivated by love. She's motivated by love and compassion for her mother. And it is that love that says, I don't care what my obligation is. I am going to go beyond that. You see, what I think this is that we have in Ruth is this beautiful picture of what Christian discipleship means when it comes to generosity. That for disciples, we view generosity not as a mere obligation, not as a law that we have to fulfill. No, Christian discipleship, it goes beyond what's required because Christian discipleship and Christian generosity isn't motivated by obligation. It's not motivated by law. It's not motivated by saying, okay, what is the, the bare minimum requirement that I have to meet here? But Christian generosity is motivated by love. And love always goes beyond what's required. Love never asks, what is my mere obligation in this? Love always asks, what can I give? What can I sacrifice? What can I offer to extend kindness and generosity to those around me? I love what, what Martin Luther says in, in his treatise on Christian freedom. He says that a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is also a perfectly dutiful servant, subject to all. 
Now, this may be odd that, that he puts it that way. How, how do these two sort of contradictory statements that a Christian is, is Lord of all, subject to none, yet is also a, a servant of all, subject to everyone? How, how do these two things fit together? But see, what, what Luther is getting at here is, is this sort of tension that always exists between faith and love. You see, according to our faith, we are certainly Lord of all, subject to none. There is nothing that can be added to faith. There is nothing that we can do, nothing that anyone can demand of us when it comes to our relationship with God. Because He's done it all. There is nothing more required. There is no obligation to fulfill. It is all by grace. And because of that grace, we are Lord of all. We are subject to no one when it comes to our salvation. But when it comes to love, when it comes to that call to love our neighbor as ourselves, we are dutiful servants. We are subject to everyone, always asking, what can I give? What can I offer? What can I do to love and serve those around me? Yes, according to faith, Lord of all, subject to none. But when it comes to love, dutiful servants, subject to everyone, always asking, not simply what the obligation is, what the minimum requirement is, but always asking, what more can I give? What more can I offer? What can I sacrifice? What can I lay down for others? And that's what the picture of Christian generosity is motivated by. Not by obligation, but by love that always goes beyond, always does more than what is required. Isn't that precisely the picture of generosity that we have in our God? Isn't that precisely how he makes himself known? We have a God who always does more than what is required. He's not concerned with what his minimum obligation is. What is the, the minimum requirement, the minimum duty that I have to creation? No, he always goes beyond it. He always extends more than what is required. We should be thankful that we have a God who is not merely considered with obligation. We should be thankful that we have a God who does not look at his creation and say, what is the minimum demand that I have toward these people? Because if that was the picture of our God that we had, you and I would be hopeless. God would have been completely justified in casting off creation when we wandered astray. When Adam and Eve tried to climb up and make gods of themselves, God could have just said, you know what, forget it. I'm going to scrap it all. It can all be condemned. It can all be lost. If they want to be their own God, they can do it and, and figure it out on their own and be lost forever. But that's not who our God is. He would have been completely justified in doing so. He could have cast down judgment without mercy. But God does not settle for the minimum requirements. He is not concerned with what his mere obligation to us is, but he is the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of generosity, who is always willing to give more. So 
So Paul says in Romans chapter 30, or Romans chapter 8, what we read this morning. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our God wasn't concerned with the minimum requirement, requirement that he had to fulfill. But instead, he went beyond his obligation by graciously giving his own son to us. He graciously sent Jesus to bear the cross that you and I probably should have had to bear. And by doing so, he poured out life and grace and mercy for the whole world. And Paul says that he who gave his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? God has already given us Jesus, and you know what? There's more in store. There is more in store. We have a God who is always offering more. Not just barely enough to receive salvation. Not just barely enough to escape hell by the skin of our teeth, but the God who always pours out more because grace is never about the minimum requirement. Grace has always been and will always be about God offering more than we could ever ask for. And that's what he does over and over again by the means of grace. Through his word, he's always offering more, more forgiveness, more new life, more good news for us. By our baptism, we have that mercy that day after day after day by repentance is, is new. As we daily drown that old person in those waters and rise to new life, he's always giving more. He's always giving more, always inviting us back to the table to receive again that same body and blood that was shed for us. For the forgiveness of our sins, for the strengthening of our faith, the God of grace, the God who has sent his son Jesus, is a God who is never concerned with the minimum requirements. He's the God who's always going above, always going beyond, always pouring out more. I think of, of the words of, of the psalmist in Psalm 84. You, you've maybe heard them before. It says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But I hear in those words, you know what? It would be enough to spend eternity as, as, a, as the lowest servant in the kingdom of God. That would be enough. That would be far better than anything we could ever create for ourselves. Just being the doorkeeper. That would be enough. That would be far better than dwelling in the tents of wickedness. But you know what? God gives us even more than that. He doesn't just welcome us to be servants and doorkeepers. He actually calls us friends. John chapter 15. Jesus says to his disciples, says, this is my commandment, 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. No longer do I call you servants. God doesn't just allow us to be doorkeepers in his house. But in Jesus, he calls us friends. In Jesus, we receive everything that the Father has given him. Eternal life. A place in his kingdom. And not just a place, but an inheritance there. Not merely servants, friends. Servants would have been enough. But our God isn't concerned with what's just enough. He's always giving more. And the call that you and I have is to be a reflection of the God who calls us friends. Our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus, he says that whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the kingdom will find it. We can spend our lives trying to hoard trying to keep to ourselves. We can spend our lives being hard-hearted and tight-fisted. We can try to build something for ourselves that way. That's fine. But Jesus says that, that the one who lives that way, the one who tries to save his life by building things for himself, whether it be money or trying to stack up good works to impress God, if that's our approach to life, we're going to lose it. Or, by faith, we can lay it all down. We can let go of trying to save ourselves, let go of, of trying to hoard things to ourselves. We can lose that life, and Jesus promises we will receive one far greater than we could have ever imagined building for ourselves. We can hoard. We can try to build our own lives. Or we can give it up and give it away. And as we lose ourselves in the generosity and the kindness of our God, who is always giving more, he promises we will find it. He promises that that life that he has won for us will be far greater than the thing that we could have ever imagined creating for ourselves. Because we have a God who does more than what's required. Don't settle for generosity that is merely about meeting the bare minimum. 
Because that's not who our God is. It's not what he has offered to us. It's not who he's called us to be. But rather embrace a generosity that seeks to reflect what your God is like. Because you have a God who has done far more than what was required. Amen? Amen.